On this episode of Stories Behind the Grind, listen to my conversation with Aaron Birkby, CEO of Startup Catalyst and founder of Peak Persona. We do a deep dive into shiny object syndrome and how to deal with the follow-through, managing shiny object tendencies in your team, like Facebook and Adobe do, why motivation is broken and what is the antidote, and how to ensure there is a cultural alignment in your team. I hope you get as much value out of this episode as I did. My name is Aidan Vokolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life to help you simplify and strategically grow, scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Aaron, thanks so much for coming for a second time on the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. It's great to have you on. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me on again. So um, previously, we talked about founder mental health and, and what qualities to look for when hiring staff. And if you're listening at the moment and want to check out part one of our conversation, check out episode 38. Before we get into the theme of today's talk about shiny object syndrome and sort of traps that startups and small businesses can fall into, how was the uh, London Tech Week mission for those that you took over there? And what are you currently working on? Yeah, so the London Tech Week mission was actually pretty incredible this year. We This was our fourth uh, mission for London Tech Week, our fifth to London. Uh, we took over 40 founders from across Australia. Actually, it was a mix of founders, investors, some government policymakers, some corporate innovators. And we sort of go to some of the 300 events on that are across the city and also a lot of our own events. But a number of the participants have picked up quite significant potential deals out of the trip, which for us is a a secondary purpose because our main mission is actually to get these entrepreneurs to think a bit more aspirationally. So add an order of magnitude to their thinking. But several of them are actually now looking to set up in the UK, which wasn't something on their radar before. So overall, a really successful mission. In terms of uh, Startup Catalyst, so we have our next mission is over to Hong Kong and Shenzhen in October. And then we have an ag tech mission to Israel in November before our youth mission, um, Australia's Best Tech Talent Under 20, heads over to San Francisco for two weeks in December as well. Well, so a, a busy sort of next half of the 2019 ahead for you guys. Yeah, so we, we do about seven missions a year. So it's, it's quite a, a cadence to maintain. It's actually pretty intense. But um, I'm always looking to expand and you know tweak our missions to have a bigger impact as well. Have you found that they've evolved over time since when you've started to where you are now into bigger and bigger sort of more impactful events? Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. When Catalyst first started, so it was founded by uh, Steve Baxter, who you'd know from Shark Tank back in 2014. But at the time, it, it was one mission a year focused around Australia's tech talent. So under 30, taking them over to Silicon Valley. But now, since then, we've expanded. So now we run not just missions for the tech guys and girls, but also for startup founders, for investors, for corporate innovators, policymakers, and going all around the world. And the goal is really to get more Aussies to actually realize the pace and scale of innovation that's happening overseas. And in many ways, we're being left behind. And we, we need to move faster and we need to be a bit more aspirational in our thinking. So uh, we're always constantly looking at how do we have an impact? How do we help founders? How do we help founders go global and have that global mindset? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic initiative that you guys are running. And um, yeah, you certainly don't, you don't really hear too much of it in the media about what the overseas guys are doing in the States until you actually go over there and, um, and see it for yourself, really. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, you look at the ecosystems like Israel, where they have something like six to 8,000 early stage technology companies, what we would call startups, on a population base of 8 million. You just think, you know, per capita, they are massively outperforming us. But also the pace at which they grow 
um, is much higher than the average startup here in Australia. So I think we have a lot to learn from all the different ecosystems and different cultures globally as well. Sure, you know, the, the shared learnings from, um, yeah, from different perspectives can really help shape where Australia goes uh, over the next decade. Yeah, exactly. Aaron, we sort of ended last conversation, we ended on, on a topic uh, and we ran out of time talking about shiny object syndrome. And I'd love to give yeah. your thoughts about, you know, why it happens, how to identify it and how to sort of overcome, you know, being distracted or being drawn to, you know, new opportunities when you're sort of currently working on the one you're at. Yeah, it's such a fascinating area. And we, we got quite excited talking about this at the end last time, but the shiny objects in there, I, th- I think entrepreneurs experience this perhaps more than other professions exactly because of our traits that make us entrepreneur or the, you know, the reason we find entrepreneurship appealing because our, entrepreneurs are naturally quite curious. We like to solve problems, um, but that curiosity means that we often do, first of all, we actually do see the shiny object that many other people would might not see or dismiss. Um, but also we're very ambitious. So we, we have this concept that yes, of course we can. So we, we tend to take on a lot of things, multitasking, but also, you know, parallel businesses or parallel pursuits, but we're also very energetic. So we tend to throw ourselves a million miles an hour at, at new things. But the other part of the shiny object syndrome is it, it's really appealing. It, like it's, it's quite easy to, to go after something and start something, to set something up and have that initial impetus of action. That's actually the easy bit. It's, it's the follow through where it's incredibly hard. So there's a bit of an endorphin rush. I think we get when we start something new and all, for all those reasons, the creativity that flows from it, the, you know, the whiteboarding, the ideation, that's that there's a lot of fun in that. So it is quite appealing to, and we do the, it's almost addictive to start things. But the challenge, of course, is the, the opportunity cost of starting things all repetitively and also not seeing things through to completion. So it's actually, it really is a disease. It's a massive distraction and, and can cause massive issues for a business owner, uh, in terms of, you know, not actually going on to achieve success. How can a, um, entrepreneur or startup founder overcome shiny object syndrome or is it something that they'll have to continually sort of deal with as they go along in their journey and sort of constantly be vigilant of not falling into that trap again? Yeah, I definitely think it's something we can overcome. So Angela Duckworth has done a lot of research around what's the leading indicator of success. So if you were to look at a population and come up with a predictor of who's the most likely to succeed in any given endeavor, um, her studies and the research actually shows it all comes down to to grit, like not quite resilience, but but grit, this determination to see something through and, and persist with something, um, despite the circumstance or despite adversity. And when you think of grit in that way, it, it really is the opposite of the shiny object syndrome. So it tells us that, you know, if we want to be successful in something, we actually have to, we really have to work on negating the, the shiny object syndrome. And there are some techniques. So I think one of the things we do in our in our peak persona programs, in fact, we've recently introduced a new one called Next Level. And uh, part of it is first just doing an audit of what haven't you completed. Like actually just write a list of all the projects that you've started but haven't actually seen through. And I think just that of itself is actually quite alarming. I don't know if you can think of examples for yourself, but for me, I, I tend to be someone who does complete things. But even for me, I came up with a list of about, probably actually about 12 different things, like new skills that I started learning or, or new, uh, maybe it's a book that I didn't finish. But I think that's where we start. It's just actually being really honest with ourselves. Are we seeing things through to completion or do we tend to jump from one activity to another? Yeah, I've definitely fallen into that trap this year, sort of having ideas. And for me, I, the way I've dealt with it is just writing the idea down on a piece of paper and, and just and leaving it just sit there for the moment and not diving into it straight away. And then, you know, 
maybe go back to it in a week or a couple of weeks and still see if, if it's a good idea going forward. I think for me, the worry is if you don't start the idea straight away, you'll sort of forget about it. So at least writing it down is a way to come back to it at a future point in time. Yeah, I, th- I think it's perfect you raised that one. So it was actually my mum when I was quite young because I, I, both my parents were like career entrepreneurs. And I don't know if it's genetic, but I definitely had the bug. So from, from very early, I had businesses through school and I was always coming up with new ideas and I, I massively sh- suffered shiny object syndrome. And my mum actually said that the thing to do is write down all your ideas, like keep a notepad with you at all times and write down all your ideas. But if the, if the idea still isn't there in three months, if it doesn't resonate three months later, then don't do anything with it. Just, just kill it. And that's been really good advice for me. I, I totally agree with what you just said. I think capture all the ideas, take note of them, because even if you don't pursue the, the shiny object, I think there is some element of the creative spark from that that could influence some other idea. But I think you should give it time, you know, sit on it. And if, if the passion's not there in a period of time later, then you sort of know that it was the right thing not to have proceeded on it. The other thing I really love uh, that you made me think of then is, uh, so, so Warren Buffett, there's this, this story about Warren Buffett and a conversation he had with his, his pilot where he got the pilot to do this exercise, which was to write down 25 career goals. So 25 like career objectives or career goals or career activities. And at the end of that process to basically prioritize them and then take the top five and put that on your to-do list. But more importantly, take the other 20 and put them on the do not do at any cost list. And I love that, this two list system of not just what should we be doing, but what should we absolutely not be doing? And I think that's the thing with most, you know, these shiny objects, they, they tend to be things that we are naturally attracted to or, or we're passionate about or we're talented, talented in. And, and therefore we feel it's a good use of our time, but it's the opportunity cost of those more important things that we're missing that we forget about. So. I think in a lot of ways, it's actually triage of priority and, and making sure we stick to what is our core objective? What is our core mission that we are working towards? And yes, these other things might even feel aligned, but any time we spend on them, it's going to be a distraction from that core mission. So we really need absolute focus. And that does need us to have this very clear list of do not do, do not do these things. So yeah, I think it can be, I think it can be learned, but it's definitely a, a conscious practice. Yeah, I love how you mentioned having those uh, those two lists and mentioning about opportunity cost. Often that's something we don't think about. It's something that we we think about all the benefits of a new idea, but we don't think about all the costs of what it'll take to actually implement that idea. And sometimes, you know, it does come at the cost of what we're currently working on. Do you find there's, yeah. there's periods of time in an entrepreneur's journey where they're more prone to shiny object syndrome? Maybe things aren't going as well in their business and they're looking for alternatives? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I do think... I mean, there's definitely the, the grass is greener um, type analogy where if you're in a tough time in your business, it, it's very easy to compare with what life would have been like if you'd done some other idea or pursued a, another venture or path. But I see it mostly, I think in terms of the entrepreneurs and the ecosystem I sort of operate in, I think I see the, the shiny object syndrome mostly with the sort of like the entrepreneurs, like they're, they're not quite yet in an established business and they seem to just hop from one idea to another. I don't know. It's like that, that very early stage, like a, a business that's under 12 months, they, they tend to hop a lot. And I think it's, it's quite hard in that period because it is such a, if you're not seeing very quick traction, it can be demotivating. And I think that's probably where I see a lot of the, the shiny object syndrome playing out is when people lose motivation. And I think, I think we actually spoke about this on the, the last podcast interview where, you know, we talked about motivation is actually broken. If you, if you rely on motivation for anything, whether it's exercise or, any sort of element of performance in your life, 
you actually end up failing. And, and the studies have backed this up now where what you actually need is a structure, like you need routine, you need habits. So you need to actually break your, like systemize your day and your use of time to achieve success. From that action, you'll find motivation rather than waiting for motivation to then inspire the action. And I think this is where a lot of people use or they believe that, you know, a change will actually solve the problem for them. And therefore they chase the shiny object rather than actually setting up a structure in their life to actually move progressively towards a goal. And I guess the example I would sort of make that akin to is, is exercising. You know, sometimes, you know, most of the time you don't feel motivated to exercise, but you know, you do it anyway. And then you build that habit or that routine where you're not reliant on motivation to do it. And then it, it becomes sort of inbuilt in, in what you do, I guess, ideally, so that it's a, a daily or, um, you know, two daily endeavor that you, um, that you keep doing. And I guess businesses is the same sort of thing in a sense. You've just got to build, like you said, those structures and those routines that you can operate it without relying on, you know, motivation by, um, by itself. Yeah, completely. I, I think you're spot on. I, you know, it's interesting. We, we talk a lot about good habits and a, and a lot of our work in our peak persona programs is about building new habits and routines. And immediately when you talk about a new habit, people think you have to be very good at like doing the things you don't want to do. So on the days where you, you know, it's raining outside, you don't want to go for a run, but you, you have to get in the habit of doing those things when you don't want to do them. But I think just as equally important, maybe even more important, but forgotten is we also need the skill set to not do the things you necessarily want to do. So there's this whole category of stuff that we do want to do, whether that's maybe some bad habit examples of lying on the couch and, and, and drinking wine at the cost of doing something more productive. But it can also be something that, you know, like I was saying before, it could be something that's quite positive, but we haven't measured that opportunity cost of it, like we were just saying. So we need to get quite good at saying no to the things we want to be doing sometimes, not just being very good at doing the things we don't want to do. I guess creating that, um, that space in your life so that you can fill it in with more important tasks. You've got to mm. yeah, say no. Yeah, I agree. You've got to say no to the things that you might want to do where there's a, you know, higher order or more valuable task you could be doing instead. You know, you've yeah. got to stop, stop doing your bad habits as much as saying yes to the habits you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are there any other traps you see those, especially early on in their journey as startups? Are there any traps that you see them falling into? across the board? Yeah, definitely. I think like particularly in this sort of topic we're talking about here is I see founders who are sort of, they're, they're working on something because it's idea number 57 on the list and the first 56 sort of failed. And I think there's a disconnect between what they're working on and, and their, I guess, their life purpose and their passion and their experience base. When you look at the most, well, the most successful founders that I see are often coming out of some sort of experience place where they've They've experienced the problem firsthand and they're, they're solving it as much for self as for the market. And they're very much aligned in, uh, they're very clear on their own purpose, what's their own intent, but also then that they, they build people around them. They build, they construct their, their teams, but they construct their support network of people who are aligned to that purpose. And I think that's something we, we, we forget a lot about is, you know, understanding what is our North Star? What is our large vision or our destination? And then every day, just having those those small sort of goals and activities that take us towards that destination. First, I think the way your question was phrased more around, you know, what do people make a mistake of? I think they, they tend to be chasing you know, short-term business success, but they've forgotten that longer-term purpose and vision, or they haven't spent the time discovering what that is for them. But I, I think you absolutely need it because if you don't have that purpose and you, you can't define a culture, you can't hire, you can't build a team, you can't sell your product because that vision isn't clear. 
Yeah, I agree completely. You won't attract people to your cause. You won't, you know, serve customers at a higher level. And you won't, like I said, you won't get a team around you either to deliver what you're, you know, wanting to deliver into this world. It really, that North Star really, one, it's a great way to know where you're going, but it's also a great way to communicate to others where you're going to accumulate a team and a community around what you do. Yeah, absolutely. It's what keeps you going as well when, when the times get really tough and the antithesis of, of shiny objects and being, being grit and resilience to see things through. I think if you don't have that, that clear vision of what your North Star is and what the, the goal and the purpose of, of why you do what you do, then you naturally won't have that resilience to see it through when, when times are tough. Yeah, I've, I've had that um, in a personal experience, you know, where I've, especially when I was sort of uh, late teens, early 20s, you know, just trying to make a bit of money on the side and, and using that as a motivator. And mm-hmm. that that was the sole motivator was, was to make some money on the side. And I soon found that, you know, when times did get tough and when, when things were taking a bit, were taking longer to, to get off the ground than I thought they would, you lose motivation. And then that's what, like when, when we were talking about before, you know, when you try to look for other ideas to, to fill that void, what you're pursuing. Yeah. But if you've got this vision... And you know what your purpose is and, and you're solving a problem not only for yourself, but for, you know, for your market, ideally, then that really does can build momentum and does give you a reason to continue through those, uh, those downtimes as well. Cause you know, there's a bigger reason for why you're doing what you do. Yeah. You're right. And I think it gives you a patience, a patience in the sense of understanding the long term game that you're playing. And I, I think this is the other part of, of shiny object syndrome, like the part of the, maybe the attraction of it is our impatience at where we're at. But once you have that, when you know you're working towards this, this clear goal and, and vision, it gives you that almost like a calming long-term perspective. You can still be incredibly impatient in the moment, still move fast and still operate at a, at a phenomenal growth rate. But it, it just gives you that perspective, I think, of, you know, I'm in this for the long game because this is my ultimate destination. And therefore, these, these little distracting shiny objects, um, you start seeing them as exactly that because you, you see them as taking you off the path that you're on. Is it the same idea when you're managing a team? Obviously, you know, you, you may be really clear on, on what the vision is for your business. But if you're managing a team, how do you manage them to make sure they don't fall into the same trap of shiny object syndrome? Is it a matter of, like we were talking about before, having that vision, purpose and goal? Yeah, a- absolutely. So, and this is a fascinating area I've been doing some work with with different corporates and scale-ups recently is around what is their organizational purpose? Is the CEO, like the, the leadership team, does their personal purpose actually align to the organizational purpose and and then drilling that down into the teams? You know, does their mission statement, their their value statement, their behavioral statements, do they all align as well? And it's amazing how many organizations they actually don't align for. Whereas when we visit startups in Silicon Valley like Airbnb or or Uber or Facebook, like the way that they have orchestrated even down to the the design of their offices is very much aligned to their to their purpose and to their culture. So Facebook, their main campus was actually designed almost like Universal Studios. Like it had this, it was almost like a, a movie set, but it was very much about community. Like it was very much about this sense of community and belonging, which is exactly what Facebook is trying to achieve. So I think here it, it, it does get lost a bit. So instilling that for your teams and, and everyone on the team knowing the clear vision that you're heading for and then having the, the culture, which becomes your, your road rules of how you get there. Because if you're building a high growth company and you're onboarding staff at that rate, the, you know, how do you control behavior? It comes down to your, the DNA of your culture and, and your culture statements, but also how that culture is acted out by the leadership. 
So absolutely, that's really necessary. And then the other way of managing it, though, is through actually orchestrating outlets for creativity and shiny object chasing, I guess. So things like Google, where they have actually lots of companies are doing this now, but where staff are given a certain amount of allocation of their time. So it can be up to, in some companies, it's up to 20% of staff time can actually be allocated for them for maker days or for, for working on pet projects. Also mechanisms where you can actually capture different ideas from staff within the organization. So it could be as simple as a Google Sheet or a, a web platform where anyone can submit any idea. And then you have systems. There's actually systems for processing which ideas we should work on and pre-approving them and then giving people the scope to actually go do that. Even Adobe have a system. So in Adobe, if you have an idea for something new, like your shiny object, they'll actually give you a, a credit card preloaded. I think it has a, it's either a thousand US or five thousand US on the credit card. And that's sort of your chance to go and experiment and see if you can turn that into something. But all of those mechanisms that different organizations introduce to give their staff some freedom to chase a shiny object, it also has a capped risk. So it's, a, it's either a certain amount of time that they can spend on it, or it's a certain amount of dollars that they can spend on it. So what it means is that it creates an environment where people can experiment. They can also, like through that process, we have to understand as well that even if those experiments fail, that the shiny object turns out you know, to be nothing. Obviously, they develop some sort of skill and knowledge through the process of attempting that. So it is quite beneficial to the organization, even if those nothing tangible comes out into the product sense. So there are lots of different ways. And this is part of my work now is how do you help organizations actually set up these systems and structures so that they can capture this ideation, give people the space to be creative and experiment, but not, not to have a long-term impact on the, on the core business. It's a really, uh, it's a really clever strategy to have because it one, it one harnesses the, creativity and innovation in your team it gives an outlet for them and then you know one in 50 ideas might be the one to move the business forward by a considerable margin and the rest are like you said they're capped so there's a there's a known risk either financial or time for those ideas and then staff can feel like they're part of something greater especially when they're when their idea is taken on board it's great to see that yeah. some of the biggest companies in the world are sort of leading the way in that way and what we can do you know here in Australia I totally agree. Like I think you touched on something there, which I think was really important as well, is that it's almost like the staff feel feel heard and that they have an an outlet for something because often they'll be coming from a point of view of experiencing a problem in their in their role or or in their operating their duties and delivering on their particular service area. So for them, they see a problem. And if if you don't give them an opportunity to actually go and experiment and, and ideate and test, then they'll become disenfranchised and they'll feel like they're they're not being heard or appreciated. So. I think you're right that the value of the team members being given that opportunity is really critical. Yeah, definitely. Do you see that there's a lot of disenfranchisement from employees working in um, you know, the businesses that you work with across the board? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I, I guess my time is spent working between early stage high growth companies, so, so startups that are typically under 60 people. And then I, I, I'm on the other extreme where I'm working with very large corporates that are trying to act like a startup. I think in the startup space, I see a lot of very happy, very content, uh, like job satisfaction is extremely high, but workloads are also high. The pressure's high. Burnout rates are very high, which is why a lot of my work there is more around how do you actually maintain self? How do you maintain a peak performance in a you know, high intensity, high cadence operational environment? Whereas in corporate land, I actually see I see a lot of people inside corporates who have, their job satisfaction is low. And it's funny, many people inside corporate land 
would love to jump to have what they perceive, you know, grass is always greener. They perceive this freedom of the startup founder, all this autonomy. I'd love to go and do that and be my own boss. Whereas the startup founder is like doing the comparison of, geez, I'd love to be inside a corporate earning the wages that they earn because I'm struggling over here. I think it is one of those things like the grass is always greener, but, but in terms of like core job satisfaction, I'd probably see a lower satisfaction rate inside the, the large organizations compared to the, to the startups. What do you think that, that comes down to? I think it is, like in a lot of ways, it is. I mean, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's core fundamental needs that we all have. But once you start getting your, your base level, like you've got shelter, you've got food, you, you've got love. When you start looking at that, you know, the, the top of the peak is all around career and personal ability and, and actually unleashing your, your natural talents. Often inside a, a large company, you play such a minor role, like you, you become a, a cog in the wheel and even a position of leadership you're still reasonably limited in the impact that you can directly make, um, even though you've got this large audience potentially, uh, or as one way of putting it. So I think people can lose the ability to, to operate creatively and autonomously. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. And, and this is all just my subjective opinion based on probably the samples that I've, I've worked with, which includes a lot of corporates that sort of come to us exactly because they, they do need that help around cultural transformation. But then you, I don't know, I see other companies like I was delivering a workshop on, on Monday to a, an organization that's 70 years old, has about, I think about 200 staff. And yet their executive and leadership team was incredibly content and very communicative and, and very much everyone there was very much aligned and clear on the, you know, the purpose of the corporate, but also the values. And there seemed to be this great alignment and this great banter, this great energy between the leadership team. So. I don't think it's necessarily a factor of the, the size of the organization or the age of the organization, but I think more how much autonomy you give your staff to be creative. And I think as well, how, how you treat failure. I'm doing some work with a, I think it's a, a Swiss-based pharmaceutical company at the moment. And like their thing is very much around how do you, how do you deal with failure inside your organization? And when people are given the freedom to fail on the outcome, that they've did everything right in the process, then people feel like they can experiment more and they can be more creative. And I think maybe that, I think maybe there's something in that. How much freedom do you give people to actually experiment and, and fail? Yeah, it's, a, it's, but it's fascinating. I guess from my experience working in a number of businesses now, it's, it's definitely something that I see is quite common. I think, like we were saying earlier on in this conversation about those businesses that can harness innovative ideas and put forward those places where employees can be creative and take a risk and potentially fail what they do, but cap that risk, that can, I guess, it seems like that would be a way to start the process of having more engaged employees working together towards a sort of common... But like you said, it it does come back down to also having that common direction, that common vision, and where our staff, I guess, are clear on what the values are and, and live by them as well. So it's a lot of things, I think, all together that would help with more engagement of um, employees. Yeah. And you made me think, of, I mean, one example where I see a, when founders get acquired, so when, when a startup gets acquired by a, a corporate, I've seen this play out every single time, actually. I can't think of a counter example where, you know, the startup founder running their startup, incredibly passionate about what they do. They live and breathe that business. They're content as much as they might be stressed operationally, but they're, they're content in what they do. But post acquisition, it's very rare for a founder to survive even their, their mandatory service period post acquisition plus one day because what happens is that the purpose alignment, the purpose of that corporate that's acquired this startup and the purpose of the startup are very much not aligned in most cases. So you end up with this founder coming inside an organization, a, bro- a bigger organization, 
first of all, it's got more procedures, more compliance, more governance, more risk management, more financial processes. So for a founder, immediately that's that's a challenge. But I think the, the disconnect between the, the purpose alignment is what leads to the greatest job dissatisfaction and why those founders end up leaving so quickly up post-acquisition. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. I guess it's, you know, putting people in an environment that they're not used to and that can't be changed or can't be changed easily and then losing that the essence of what made their startup, you know, successful. Yeah, exactly. Really, really interesting that not many make it past the mandatory notice period. <laughs> no, so yeah, so so under most acquisitions, um, most founders are sort of obligated and the core team are sort of obligated to to stay it could be two years, sometimes three years, but, and it's sort of like they sunset in. So for example, it could be for the, the final tranche of the acquisition, you know, payment. So the, you know, the equity payout, that sort of stuff, or it could be a bonus payment for, for staying that long. So yeah, I know some of my mates haven't seen it through. They're just like, I don't, I don't care. I'm going to lose this amount of money by, by leaving early, but I just can't keep working here another day. And for others, they, they do exactly the minimum term. To get the payout and then and then go, but but it's all about the misalignment of of purpose, the misalignment of, of intent and daily objectives. So, and like I was saying before, when you when you don't have that purpose, you you lose the motivation because there's nothing to actually keep you there. What's a what's a good barometer for knowing in your organisation or business where there is a mismatch of purpose? What are the things to look out for? Yeah, it's fascinating, and it actually touches on something very close to home that I'm going through at the moment, which I probably can't talk about. But yeah, I think part of it is the the alignment of core values of the leadership team versus your own. So look, there's lots of different psychometric profiling of, of that you can undergo from disc profiles and, and right through, but even simple things like love languages. But as much as we can operate, you, you can have all sorts of different profiles in different roles. But when you start seeing patterns of behavior of the why are people making decisions in a certain way, like what what's the decision matrix that they use or, or the decision tree that they use when when listening or responding to ideas or, or to directions for the business. And when that decision matrix is different to your own, that's a bit of an alarm bell. So you can either, lots of organizations like Facebook now, they'll create actual, they'll actually map their decision-making processes from one leader down to their subordinates so that there's a common methodology for making decisions and a common framework. But when you realize that your fundamental value system is different to that, I think that's when you recognize there's a disconnect. So if your objective is, for example, like ecosystem building, but your organizational objective is to build that organization, there's always going to be friction there. So whenever you suggest something, you'll probably be asked questions about why you're undertaking that activity. Like, can you justify this? And and when you present a justification back as to why you did something and that justification isn't valued, that's clearly a, a sign that the, the value system doesn't align, but probably the, the purpose doesn't align as well. But yeah, thanks for clarifying, you know, what to look out for. Because it's, yeah, it can take some deep reflection as well for people working in business, not only yeah. um, as, as founders, but also as um, employees to, to really yeah. understand is, is the business I'm working in aligned to what I believe in and what I value. Yeah. And, and what I'd say there is I think this is forgotten in the recruitment process. So I think we're starting to see smarter recruitment now. So I guess what I've seen in evolution of, of, of recruitment is lots of skills-based recruitment then becoming experience-based recruitment, now increasingly starting to look at culture alignment. But I think I, I don't see too many interviews that begin with the question of purpose, like for the employee to know the organizational purpose and leadership team's individual purpose in life and, and how that maps to their own. But I think we should be hiring for, for purpose. Like, are we all pointing to the same true north? 
and then looking at values and then looking at experience and finally, you know, the, the education. But yeah, I don't think we talk about that enough inside organizations. No, and hopefully, hopefully it's something that sort of morphs and um, develops as, you know, as time goes on, as businesses need to become more savvy to attract top talent, to really, really understand what top talent means and, you know, making sure that those on, like you said, those on the team have that common sort of purpose or vision that they're aligned towards and then looking at everything else after that. Yeah. Can save a lot of pain down the track when they're, you know, yeah. might take some more time in the recruitment stage, but better, better in the recruitment stage than, you know, two years in going through the um, process of, you know, firing someone or, or that staff member leaving. Yep. Yeah. yeah, completely. Aaron, where can people find more about you, what you're up to and um, more about Startup Catalyst? Yeah, so um, stalk me on any of the, the socials. So I, I tend to do a lot on, on Twitter and Instagram. For Startup Catalyst, it's just www.startupcatalyst.com.au and my passion project with Peak Persona, so www.peakpersona.com. And yeah, more than happy to help out any of your listeners if, if they're keen to do anything in Peak Persona land. I'm, I'm more than happy to share a, a promo code to, to give them a discount as well. Awesome. I'll include, um, include that promo code in the, in the show notes for people awesome. to use. Awesome. Great conversation. Thanks again. No, thanks for having me on. It's, it's always a pleasure. I love, love chatting to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Grind. Please share the podcast. And if you're not already subscribed, be sure to do that right now. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could do me a quick favor and rate and review the podcast. This lets the platform know that I'm doing something right and people like the content. It'd be a huge help and I'd be really, really grateful if you could. Until next time.